Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. Welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I am Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. And today, I am very pleased to be welcomed by one of our very own instructors, a barbecue aficionado, and unfortunately a Texas fan, but our very own Paul Young. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. I actually am wearing my Terry Black's barbecue hat as we talk today. So can't wait to chat. And I'm sure somewhere in your office within reaching distance is something <laughs> that says University of Texas on it as well. I'm just going to go. 100%. I wouldn't, be, <laughs> I wouldn't be a Longhorn, you know, if I didn't. I've got more UT memorabilia in this office than you could even imagine. But that's all right. I'm surrounded. I'm in my happy place, ready to talk about distinctive competencies. And unfortunately, the distinctive competency for Texas football recently has not been winning. <laughs> we're, hope, we're hopeful. We're hopeful that that will turn around soon. Excellent. Well, all right. For those who have not had the pleasure of having you in the classroom, tell us a little bit about your background because it's a great one. Absolutely. Sure. So I have had a Interesting career, I think. Uh, so so I actually, if you go all the way back, my degree from the University of Texas is in film. And I knew pretty quickly in going through that, that I really enjoyed that creative side. But at the time when I graduated with that degree, the choices for where to go work in, you know, television or film are, are not like they are today. There, there wasn't a lot of options to work out of New York or LA. Those were basically your two choices. Nowadays, it's very different. You know, you could probably make a living in in Austin or Atlanta or any number of other places, but it's not like it wasn't like that then. So, because I didn't want to move to New York or LA, <clears throat> I taught myself how to program, and I actually spent the first four or five years of my career as a software developer. And I did Swing and Java, and I did a bunch of SQL stuff with Oracle and and so on. And you know, I I got okay at that, but I realized pretty quickly that that was not going to be the career that I wanted to build. So I transitioned into product management through just luck. And, you know, some, one of my mentors gave me the chance to, to try it out as an opening popped up and I really enjoyed it. I found out that I, I really liked working with customers and teams and understanding problems and all that stuff. And so I, I caught on with a startup first doing software development and then product management. And then eventually that startup 
was acquired by a little company called Cisco. And I stayed at Cisco and that's really where I cut my teeth into product management and marketing. And I did that for another five, six, seven years, uh, moved into a variety of different roles in that organization. Eventually I was recruited out to go work at a startup here in Austin to build product management for the first time. And that was in the more B2C hardware space, which was really interesting. So I did that for a while. Uh, got an exposure to the venture capital startup world uh, in doing that. Uh, and then eventually I was recruited out again to go build product management for software within Dell for the first time. And at that time, Dell had never really been doing software. They had just been doing servers and you know laptops and things like that. And so they had made a bunch of acquisitions of small software companies, and they were looking for a leader to come in and start building some discipline around product management in those areas. And so I got to do that for you know, five or six years again, build a team and and have some really interesting conversations that maybe we can talk about today. But it was great, great experience. And then uh, all throughout that journey, I had been using what at the time was called pragmatic marketing to train both myself and my teams. And at the time, pragmatic was looking for an instructor. And so about 10 years ago, I came over to pragmatic, I joined the team as an instructor. And it's been a really great journey. I've, I've had the chance to work with at this point, tens of thousands of students, hundreds of different companies all over the world. I think I've taught on almost every continent at this <laughs> point, except maybe Antarctica. And uh, it's been it's been wonderful. I love I love what I do. I love the people I work with and for. And it's just a great it's a great role. It's a great it's been a great career, and I've enjoyed it. Awesome. You're always a pleasure to see in the classroom. And I can tell you that we are trying to get the penguins in Antarctica to uh, to agree to a training. But uh, sign you me know, up. Sign, sign me you up. up. Right. Okay. I would say that I, like you, also took the training and used the training before I joined the company, right? Starting product management teams, leading product management teams. That's how I, I first learned about Pragmatic. And one of the concepts that stood out to me immediately, I could almost like recite word for word what I learned about it the first time because it was that kind of a powerful piece is what we're going to talk about today, uh, which is distinctive competencies. And I think to start, the important thing to say is like, hey, what is a distinctive competency? <laughs> so for those of you who weren't in the training with me all those years ago. So Paul, give us a nice definition of distinctive competencies. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll put on my radio voice to do this. So distinctive competencies is a really interesting topic because it's not well understood. I don't think this is something that most people study. I, certainly if you go to most MBA programs and if you go talk to most consultants, they they may not be familiar with this term. And so it creates a lot of interesting discussion. But once people really start to dig into this topic, I agree the the power of it becomes apparent pretty quickly. And pragmatic, as far as I know, is one of the few that's out there that's really recognized this concept and teaches it consistently with our with the groups that we work with. Here's how we define it. Distinctive competencies are the unique attributes that your organization has developed that allow you to deliver value into your market. Now that's by itself sounds kind of generic or, or antiseptic. So it's important that we get into the details because distinctive competency is a new concept for many people. I like to relate it back to something that people probably are familiar with. And for many people, I like to start with the concept of core competencies. Rebecca, that's something I'm guessing you're familiar with, have heard about before, right? Yes. How would you describe core competencies? 
those are the things that your company are good at. Right. It's like, you know, these core competencies are something that we're really good at as an organization. You know, maybe that's our supply chain management or it's our customer service. You know, those things could be core competencies and we could probably come up with lots of them. Think of your distinctive competencies as a subset of your core competencies. It's the stuff that we're really good at that not everyone else has. Mm. Because by definition, your distinctive competencies are unique to you. And there are things that are unique to you that manifest in value that your buyers and users in your market care about. The quick shortcut way that I like to describe it, it's your organizational DNA. It's like your unique fingerprint in the market that allows you to deliver value and gives you credibility to solve problems that maybe your competitors can't solve the way that you can. So it's something, so your core competency, so you still need to be good at it, right? It is competency, but it's distinct. So it's unique. And why, and and it's unique. And in that, it means that it separates you from the competition. Absolutely. So often I think this this concept, it, it probably comes through better by way of example, because, you know, we can talk about the theory of distinctive competencies all day long, but, you know, <laughs> the name of our company is Pragmatic Institute. So let's be pragmatic about this and just sort of bring it to life. So couple of examples, um, and, and I'll just go through. Some of these are things that if you've come to class, you may be familiar with. Some of these may be new. But one example of a distinctive competency that we might look at is innovation. Now, certainly many organizations would say innovation is a core competency for them, but is it distinct? And so when I think of innovation as a distinctive competency, I think of something about that innovation that is unique to that organization or really sets them apart from their competitors in the space. Many people here would point to companies like Apple or Tesla or SpaceX or 3M, you know, as examples of companies that have a distinctive competency around innovation. When I think of Apple, you know, you think about that a lot of people would say, well, what do you mean, Paul? They're, they're, they're not really an innovator. They're actually a laggard. You know, they, they were certainly weren't the first to come out with a smartphone or a MP3 player or a smartwatch or anything. And, and all that is true. But Apple's innovation is not in developing new technology. Their innovation is in user experience and making existing technology that was previously super complex, super easy to use, hmm. which is absolutely something that their market values. And through that shows up in their ecosystem of things that work better together. That's why when you start off with an iPhone, you typically end up with an iPhone, a Mac, an Apple Watch, an iPad, all those other things together. So that's their innovation is how it all ties together. So one of the things you say, it's, it's not easy for your competition to copy. In the case of Apple, I mean, there are other companies that do good design. Is it just a matter of the rest of them don't have the level of investment or time? Or how do you think that that innovation is something they're able to hold on to? Well, I, I say this without, you know, living inside of Apple and mm -hmm. seeing, you know, all their choices that they make day in and day out. But you can just look at what they exhibit from the outside and, and the interviews and so on that people have given when they leave. So a lot of it's cultural and from the top down, the, what, what leadership chooses to go invest in. We, we have a longstanding article that was written in our Pragmatic Marketer magazine several years ago, and you'll still find it on our website. Uh, it's called You Can't Innovate Like Apple. And in that article, we talked to somebody who is familiar with Apple's internal product development process who told us some of the details. And what most people don't realize is how much investment Apple makes mm. in things like user experience, specifically like you take a 
an app on your phone or you know what whatnot in in iOS. I talk to executives every single week who say things like, "Well, why can't we? We want to be like Apple. We want to invest like that. We want to use your experience like that." And what I tell them is, "Okay, well, do you realize that every screen that you see in your phone, if you have an iPhone, over the course of a year, Apple has built ten different pixel perfect functional models, prototypes." of how to accomplish a task in an app or in iOS. And over the course of a year, they whittled it down to three, and then finally the one that you're using. So they basically they basically throw away 90% of their work. And that's by design, because they want to get to something that works in an amazing way for the user. So I always ask executives who, who say, I wanna be just like Apple, are you willing to throw away 90% of what you do or, or invest 10X more and throw away 90% of it? Usually the answer is no, uh, but but Apple has, they've kind of built that into their process. And that's why I say it's a distinctive competency for them with regard to innovation. Yes. Yep. That makes sense. So we have a distinctive competency, which is one of your competencies. So A, you're good at it. B, it's unique to you. So your other competitors in the space don't have it. And I think the other thing that you made, which is important, right, is that your market values it. Doesn't matter if you're good at it, if they don't care, Right. Yeah, I mean, if we said we have a distinctive competency in, you know, bookkeeping, you know, or we have a distinctive competency in hiring, it's like, okay, I mean, you may, you, that may be a core competency, you may be really good at those things, and, and maybe those things are unique to you or how you do it is unique, but do those things manifest in value that your market actually cares about? Uh, or could articulate. If the answer is no, then it's not a distinctive competency. It's just a competency, which doesn't make it bad. It's just not mm -hmm. a distinctive competency at that point. So we talked about innovation. There's other examples. Uh, you could think of a, a distinctive competency around culture. I think of examples here like Zappos. Mm -hmm. um, Zappos is an online an online shopping place that was acquired by Amazon a couple of years ago, uh, but they sell shoes. And they've created a, a very interesting culture there where very clearly the customer always comes first. And so, for example, if you're not sure what size you need, you just call them up or you get on their website. They'll actually ship you like three different sizes. And then you just keep the one that fits and send back the other two at no charge. And they'll do things like that for you uh, because it's part of their culture of like customer service. I also think of Nordstrom, uh, famously... Nordstrom had the, uh, the the one line employee handbook that said our employee handbook is a single card that says use good judgment in all situations, you know, creating a culture of, of trust in their employees to do the right thing. Even if maybe it's going to cost them a little money in the short term, they're putting the customer first and they're putting, they're putting the employee first. So I think of those as examples of culture. Most, most companies, especially those with like a large retail outlet, don't put that level of trust in their employees. That's awesome. Uh, another company I think of like the uh, Chewy.com for those of us with furry, furry, furry loved ones, they have the same kind of feel when you talk to them, it just feels even whether it's on email or on the phone, the level of personal service and the level of empowerment that they've given their employees to make the decisions on the behalf of the company for the customer, right? This is not a, I will go check with my manager. It's like, yep, I can do that for you right now. It's great. Absolutely. And Chewy's always comes up with the students I work with as well. I'm not a customer of theirs, but apparently, you know, if if your if your pet, you know, crosses the rainbow bridge, so to speak, then Chewy mm -hmm. will send you a, a card, and you know they'll they'll offer to donate, you know, some stuff, the the toys and so on, you know, to 
a local shelter, you know, things like that. They just show they carry, right? It's not just about, not just about the bottom line, although those things will positively affect their bottom line. That's, you don't get the right. sense of that's why they're doing it. It's, you know, I just talked about Chewy.com on a podcast, right? I don't, <laughs> because, because of the kind of behaviors they've done, right? Exactly. How much earned advertising did they just get? Jeez. <laughs> right. um, and I'm very, your pets are shaking their head at you right now, Paul, that you've not done Chewy.com. I, I know I'm such a, I'm apparently I'm bad pet father. Oh, well. <laughs> You're not winning pet father of the year. Exactly. Uh, uh, what about other, like there are more technical type of distinctive competency? There definitely could be. So, so a couple other examples of distinctive competencies, customer intimacy. Uh, so customer intimacy is where I think of like the white glove treatment. Customer is always right. Customer intimacy focused organizations tend to put a big premium on service. So it's related to culture. You'll often find them together, but it may be a little different. I think of like McKenzie and other big consultants in the B2B space. They're, they're really going to dig into the guts of your organization and they're going to know every detail and they're going to use that to provide you with better consulting, better coaching, better you know, outcomes for your business. You might think about your CPA, you know, who does your taxes. They're about customer intimacy. Talk about knowing every detail of your life. Um, and so like most CPAs don't advertise on like, hey, we're the cheapest CPA out there, right? Like I, when I'm going to somebody to do my taxes, like I don't want the cheapest. I want, I want somebody who's not going to get me audited. And so like, that's really what they hang their hat on. Typically, you could also think of most luxury brands as customer intimacy as their model. You think of like a Harrods or a Neiman Marcus or a Tiffany. They're, they're really, when you go in there, you, like you don't drive a Mercedes because it gets you from point A to point B in the most efficient way. Uh, and you don't stay at a Four Seasons hotel because it's the cheapest option to go stay in, in that location. You're doing it because you want to be pampered. You want to go in luxury. That customer intimacy is what most luxury brands tend to gravitate towards. And they all have their own spin on it that makes them unique in how they deliver it. Awesome. Another example, operational efficiency. That could be a distinctive competency or operational excellence, you might say. Uh, you, you might think of a company like Toyota here with all the quality efforts that they put in. Um, you think of uh, Walmart and Amazon. They are notorious for squeezing their supply chain to get all the cost out of the equation. You might think of a FedEx here as well. You know, It's really about efficiency. Uh, and then one other really good one is domain expertise. An example I was thinking of before our, our pod today, Rebecca, was... Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but back in the day during Desert Storm, all the oil wells got set on fire. You know, during the the storm, they were destroyed, and there was a um, a little company called KBR Kellogg Brown and Root, based out of Houston. They work a lot in the oil field industry, and they have a very specific domain expertise in the complex firefighting of oil well fires. And they were brought in by the Army Corps of Engineers and the U.S. government to actually cap the oil wells and put them out uh, with the fires that were going on in Iraq because they, you can't just call like a regular firefighter to do that. You know, this is a literally pressurized oil shooting out of the ground. You need a very specific domain expertise. Apparently they actually use explosives to shut off the fire. I'm not sure how that works, but like that's a very specific domain expertise to them. All right. So we talked about what it is, right? Something that you're good at, that your market values and that is unique to you. Uh, we talked about some great examples. I do think that super helps. Uh, why though? I mean, tell me why it's so powerful. A couple of reasons. Distinctive competencies and understanding your distinctive competencies are powerful because number one, they create a barrier 
to the competition. So if you are uniquely great at something, it's going to be really difficult for the competition to attack you on that vector. So for example, you think about you know, IBM, you could argue that one of their distinctive competencies is their patent portfolio. Uh, they literally have tens of thousands of patents covering every, everything. Uh, and so if you're going to get into a patent war against IBM or a company like that, you better bring a billion dollars in about 30 years of your life. And you still might not prevail because you're attacking them at a place where they're the strongest. And so that's one benefit of distinctive competencies is it really provides that moat, that barrier to entry. It also gives your organization a touchstone to rally around because if everyone is on the same page and understands what is our unique DNA, that will start to inform decisions around where should we invest or where should we not? Uh, what is our culture that we're trying to develop look like? And, and strategy and internal discussions can start to you know, rally around that, that, that idea of your distinctive competency. Uh, and then the third, and the one that, that we focus on a lot in our, in our teaching is it informs what we call opportunity analysis. So if you understand your distinctive competency and what is your unique DNA, you can use that to chase opportunities that are aligned with your distinctive competencies. And the reason that's good, most people this should resonate with, it is so much easier to flex muscles that you already have than it is to build new muscles you don't have yet. Hmm. And so if you can find opportunities that allow you to flex that, that DNA that you've got right now, you're probably going to be in a better shape to capitalize on that opportunity. That makes so much sense. And I think it's really hard to under, to overstate rather the, the, the power of having like a true, a North star for the organization, for the whole organization to understand what it is that you're really good at and why that matters. Because like we were talking a little bit about those other companies that empower their employees, right? That's what having that clear understanding of, of what your distinctive competencies are and where you want to focus allows employees to make even small decisions up to large decisions because they know where to focus. Uh, and I think that's super powerful. Exactly. Yeah. If you, if you don't have it, or if you don't know, or if your organization is struggling and everyone has a different idea, very quickly, you know, what you end up with is one person running in one direction and somebody else running in another and multiply that times the number of employees in your team. And you can start to see where the issue arises. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it seems obvious then. Obviously, we should all do this. And, and I think you've given us a very clear understanding of what they are. So where could this possibly go wrong, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, a lot of places. Uh, like anything, if you if you mess this up, it's because this is such a powerful concept. It's got far-reaching implications yeah. within your organization. So we want to get it right. So a couple places where it can go wrong. Uh, number one is assuming what your distinctive competencies are. Basically, what that means is that we sit in a room together. We never talk to anybody outside of that room, and we say, "This is our distinctive competency. Let's go with that." We refer to that as corporate mythology. Basically, we're just going to invent a myth and we're all going to buy into it. It doesn't work. The market has to share in what you think your distinctive competencies are and agree with them. If they don't, there's a disconnect that we have to resolve. We either have to start moving in the direction the market thinks we are, or we have to start building something new and get the market educated around what that is. But either way, you need some external validation for what your distinctive competencies actually are. That's number one. 
And I think honestly, that's the one I've seen people fall victim through the the most, right? They're so there's such a strong internal beat of like, we're really good at this, that no one stops to ever think about a, are you still as good at that in comparison to others? And does your market care that you're good at that? Like you said about the bookkeeping or nothing, I feel bad for all the bookkeepers, but uh, <laughs> right. But there is a, that validation, just like everything else we teach, it's really, really important that your market, you get market feedback on the value of it and the I think they will often tell you where you have permission to go and what you have permission to stretch towards. So I think that's that's a really important piece. But it's not the only place people can fall down. Nope. Second place I see people falling down a lot is focusing too much on the technology aspect. People oftentimes, especially if you have an engineering background or if you have a really charismatic CTO or a, or a founder who's in love with their technology and it's their it's their precious baby, then I get a lot of conversations with those types of people saying, well, our distinctive competency is our proprietary, scalable, cloud-based AI ML solution (laughs) for whatever. And the problem with that is that the half-life of technology, even IP protected technology is pretty short. So what is unique today will not be unique tomorrow. It's going to get copied. And so hanging your hat on your unique technology, whatever it is, is usually a recipe for, I don't want to say disaster, but at least that's too too dramatic, but it's a recipe so that your distinctive competency will get displaced quickly. So usually if you think about distinctive competency as a DNA, it's something deeper than that. It's something more organizationally focused. And so that, that would be the second big downfall is focusing your distinctive competency on your technology. It's probably something more than just that. The third area where I see people getting stuck here, and this is really common, is trying to have too many distinctive competencies. If you're a startup, my coaching is typically aimed for one distinctive competency for the entire company. Because, you know, you're a startup, right? You don't have very many resources. You got to pick what are you trying to be when you grow up and go for that. If you're a large company, you're probably going to want to push the distinctive competency conversation down in the organization to the business unit, or maybe even the product family level. So like, let's take IBM as an example, because I think many people are familiar with this. There's probably a very different DNA within IBM for IBM mainframes, which by the way, is still a multi-million dollar business versus IBM global services versus IBM Watson and cloud products. Each one of those things are different. So it is possible for a bigger organization to have multiple DNAs, but usually I would think about it more at the BU or, or maybe down to that product family level. The other reason that one is important is that sometimes teams will also fail if different parts of the organization have different ideas about what their DNA actually is. This is that touchstone we talked about a moment ago. If we haven't had an explicit conversation about our DNA, like, let me ask you this question, Rebecca. Do do you think that, what do you think is going to happen if half the organization thinks that our DNA is innovation and then finance thinks our distinctive competency is efficiency? We won't be all rowing in the same direction. Very much not. Because innovation says like, let's invest money for the future. We got to figure out what's next. You know, it's it's pretty intensive in terms of investment. Whereas efficiency and cost efficiency is about squeezing the bottom line uh, and getting everything to fall down to that. Those two distinctive competencies or those different ideas of what our DNA is actually are going to get in a fight. And eventually one of them is going to win. But up until the point where somebody wins or one of those two things wins, 
it's like this horrible battle. And as you said, if you use the analogy of rowing a boat, instead of all rowing in the same direction, it's like we're rowing in two separate directions. And as a result, everybody knows what happens when you row a boat in two separate directions. You go in a big circle. And we don't want that. We all want to go in the same direction. So having this conversation internally about what is our DNA, what do we want, what do we want to be when we grow up, critically important so that we start to row in that common direction. Love it. And there's one more, probably the most important because it has some really big implications. One more downfall uh, where people go wrong with distinctive competencies. I I call this violating your distinctive competencies. So that's when you have a distinctive competency that is one thing, and then you go in a different direction with your product development or your strategy or, or, or whatnot. The, the analogy I, I always used to say here, and you'll probably hear the, hear the Texas in my voice, <laughs> say, you know, there's a lot of money in ice cream, but that doesn't mean that your company should go and open a Dairy Queen because that's not your business, right? If you go against your DNA, it creates this ripple effect in the market where the market steps back and says, whoa, wait a second, you are in that business now? That's mm-hmm. weird. And it creates this cognitive dissonance that's really hard to get over. When... When I'm teaching in class, I'll oftentimes use examples like, well, what if you walked into a Walmart and after going into the store, you were approached by a very sharply dressed personal shopper who asked you, you know, if they could go with you and help you shop and pick out some jewelry and nice outfit. For most people, that'd be pretty weird. Just like it'd be weird if you walked into a luxury store like a Nordstrom or Neiman Marcus and there was a flashing blue light that said 99 cent super saver sale. It wouldn't match your expectation. Or, or what if Dodge, which is like the ultimate muscle car, you know, type company, came out with a Prius competitor? That would be really weird, not aligned with their DNA. Or, or what if Colgate, the toothpaste company, came out with some with ready-to-eat meal kit? <laughs> By the way, of those three examples I just gave you, one of those is true and actually happened. The last one, Colgate, came mm-hmm. out with ready-to-eat meals. That's pretty gross. Like, no, people don't want to buy ready-to-eat meals from their toothpaste company. Um, <laughs> So it's important that we're all on the same page and you know what your DNA is so that when you go after opportunities, you go after things that don't create that, that weird disconnect that I was just describing in the market. All right. So we've talked about what it is, something you're good at, that your market cares about, that's unique to you. We've talked about why it's so powerful, right? The barriers to competition, the North Star for your internal organization overall, but particularly for your own sort of prioritization. And now we've scared everybody with uh, some very true ways that people go wrong, right? Making the assumptions about it, focusing too much on technology, trying to have too many, like distinctive competencies, C's, C's, and C's, and more and more, and then ignoring them, right? Like they don't work if you don't pay attention to them. But I don't want to leave people on that negative note because they really are so, so powerful. And I think you've got some really good example of in your own career, how they've been leveraged and some of the the good and the hard parts with that, that I think would be great if you could share. Sure. Absolutely. So I, I've got actually one of each. Yes. So, well, let me start with the, the one that maybe wasn't so good. So I mentioned that earlier in my career, I was brought in to Dell to do, you know, build their product management team around software for the first time. And it was really interesting because if you, if you turn back the clock, you know, 15 years, that company was going through a total organizational shift moving from moving, you know, shipping servers and laptops to more of a mixed, you know, solution-oriented software hardware service sale to enterprise. And that entailed lots of different changes to the organization. There were there were different margins, there were different sales cycle, there were different skill sets, it was a different culture. 
And when I ran product for that early part of the software business, it was painful because I had multiple conversations with executives who were in what I called the old world uh, of selling hardware. And they would come to me and say, Paul, why are you ripping off our customers with your high margin software? We're, we're going to give that away so that we can sell more low margin laptops. And it was just emblematic of the, the, the culture and the idea that hardware was what was important. Now, strategically, the leadership of the company saw the need for change, but the organizational heft and the momentum were really rooted in the old world. They hadn't really shifted their distinctive competency. And I think it's a good case study actually of changing your DNA. It is possible to change your distinctive competency, but it takes a lot of effort. I, I like to say there's two ways to do it. There's the slow way and there's the fast way. The slow way takes a lot of time, takes a lot of investment, takes a lot of executive attention, hiring the right people, consistency over time, a cultural shift. I mean, it could take years. You think about the you know, journey that IBM has gone through as they went from like typewriters to mainframes, to laptops, to servers, to cloud, to services and everything in between. They've gone through seven different CEOs in the last 20 years or 30 years, but they've made the shift and they seem to be doing all right. There's also the fast way. The fast way to change your distinctive competency is to acquire a company. And then their distinctive competency will then merge with yours to create something new. And ultimately for Dell, that's the route they went. They, they did both actually. They, they did make the right investment in, in resourcing and, and culture and so on, but they also made some really big acquisitions in the software space like Quest Software and so on. Multi-billion dollar acquisitions that created enough organizational and revenue weight within the company uh, to shift to a more mixed hardware, software, services, solution-oriented model. So maybe that's not quite a failure. It's a little bit between, a little bit mixed. Uh, didn't work so well in the beginning, worked better later as everyone started to get on board with that, with that shift. And your other story? So for the other one, this one's kind of interesting. So I, I mentioned that I worked part of my career at Cisco Systems. And I'm a big fan of Cisco. I think everyone at some point in their career learns if they prefer big companies or small companies. And I've learned in my career that I enjoy small companies more, but that isn't to say that Cisco was bad. It was actually really good. As large companies go, it was, it was excellent. But Cisco was a really interesting case study in distinctive competencies. If, if I were to go to most people and say, what is Cisco's DNA? You might identify things like domain expertise. You know, if you've got a routing and switching question, they've got lots and lots of experts in that area that you can talk to. They also have a distinctive competency or DNA in customer service and support. You know, if you pay for it, they will take care of your stuff. They actually have something like, I don't know how many today, but they had hundreds of depots all over the world with hot spare equipment that, you know, if you're in Latvia, you know, and you need a firewall, they can get it to you within two hours or something like that. It's pretty incredible. But one DNA that Cisco has that many people don't know about is acquisitions. And I actually think that's one of their most powerful DNAs. At the time that I was acquired into Cisco, which was admittedly like 20 years ago, the company I worked for was Cisco's 100th acquisition. Wow. And at this point, they've probably done at least that many again. And so they actually have a really, really strong process for acquisitions. Within a week of that acquisition closing, they had parachuted in a whole like strike team of people from IT to HR, 
everybody to get you on the new systems, to get you turned up on the technology and training on their new standards and everything. It was incredible. Now, the company I worked for had a brand of its own, and so they didn't want to just shut that down, but they had a very clear, you know, two-year plan to integrate the brands and, and, and everything. It was, just, it was just amazing. And so in one way, that's a good example of using your DNA to, to flex into an opportunity that was really good. And when they made that acquisition, the incorporation of it into the mothership was, was really nice. And let me tell you, I made more flights between Austin and San Jose over those two years than I ever want to remember. They call that flight between Austin and San Jose the nerd bird because there were so many (laughs) people like me on there, product managers, engineers, and so on, flying the nerd bird. They still have that flight. Anyway, so it's also, however, an example of where organizational DNAs can be a little bit misleading. So again, it's, it's a mixed bag. The company that I worked for provided services for Cisco equipment. So in other words, if you were a big company and you bought a you know, couple million dollars worth of Cisco equipment, you didn't either have the expertise to manage it yourself or you didn't want that burden. The company I worked for provided outsourced services to manage that stuff for you. So instead of hiring a bunch of people in IT, you could hire this service and we would remotely manage your stuff. So your firewalls and your IP telephony and your routers and switches and all that good networking stuff that you don't really want to think about, but you have to in order to run your business. And Cisco, because one of their DNAs is customer service and providing that high level of service, they figured, hey, great acquisition. It aligns with our DNA. Here's the problem. Even though that's true, what they didn't realize is that by going through that acquisition, it now puts Cisco into direct competition with their top resale partners. So you think of companies like your, you know, IBMs, your AT&Ts, your Verizons and so on that that actually sell Cisco hardware as a resale partner but also want to wrap their own services around them. Services that now Cisco was going to be displacing with the company that they bought they brought me in for. And so even though it was aligned with your DNA, it's an example of it wasn't a perfect thing. So it's not a it's not a magic bullet that's going to magically make something work. You all, you have to consider the bigger business conditions too. But I like to think of that as an example of, you know, considering your DNA is necessary but not sufficient for evaluating an opportunity. There's a lot of other opportunity scoring mechanisms that we might want to look at to say is an opportunity worth pursuing. But DNA is certainly a big one of them. I like how when you tell that story too, about both those stories, right? There are wins in there and then there are misses in there. And I think that is the reality, right? Of any company of any size, but you can see where they were really focused and taking advantage of their, their distinctive competencies, the lower the risk it was and often the, the faster path to reward. Absolutely. All right. We talked a lot about distinctive competencies. We talked about what they mean, why they matter, some great examples, what to watch out for. You know what I'm going to ask. I reminded you this last time, Paul. (laughs) We're going to have our audience do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today. What would it be? Well, number one, you should be able to articulate your distinctive Mm -hmm. competencies. And so... I, I would probably combine these two things into into one big thing, but that one big thing is you want to get together a cross-functional group and it should have representation from your executive team. In fact, it's probably the executive that should be driving and leading this, but that cross-functional group should be tasked with articulation 
of your DNA. And if you're, again, at a small company, you're doing this for the company. If you're at a large company, you're going to push it down to the business unit or product family level. But everyone in that cross-functional group should walk out of there, you know, holding hands and saying, this is what we've identified as our DNA. Of course, you then have to go check it in the market <laughs> to make sure that that resonates with the market. But once you determine that you've got something that is valued by your target market, it's unique to you. It creates that value that people actually care about. Then we can start to spread that knowledge across all the teams internally so that we're all rowing in the same direction and we have that touchstone that we talked about. So if you want some help with that, we actually have some worksheets as part of our uh, training that you can find in our alumni community. I'll give you a good starting point and we teach teams how to go through that. Always happy to help people with that if they need it. But that would be my one thing that I would do to take, to take advantage of the things we talked about today. Great. There's also a great video in the community that kind of walks through some of the distinctive competencies. Unfortunately for all you listeners, it's also narrated by me. So you're gonna be like, oh, look, it's Rebecca again. <laughs> but Rebecca is saying things for much smarter people. So it's okay. All right, Paul, it was a pleasure having you on today. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your expertise and insights on distinctive competencies. Like I said, it was one of the most powerful things I remember from my first set of trainings with us. And I immediately went back and did the same thing. I wrote I wrote them down. I went and talked to all of our leadership team. And I was like, hey, does this resonate with you? Does this feel right? And we really started to, to speak of those and use those as a way of prioritization. So appreciate that. You coming on to share with us and hopefully uh, giving insights for others that they can start to use. Awesome. And uh, everybody go get some good barbecue. Think about <laughs> your distinctive competencies and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, that does it for today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>